Welcome to Light for the Journey, a podcast of Russell Memorial United Methodist Church. Each week, we open the scriptures in faith that the timeless truth of God will guide us as we seek to follow in the steps of Jesus. This week's message comes from the first Sunday of Lent, the time when we prepare for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. During Lent, it is traditional to reassess and repent of your sins, to spend the 40 days cleansing your soul so that you can be reborn with Jesus on Easter. In this week's message, Pastor David Cartwright begins this season by exploring the three forces working against that goal, Satan, the flesh, and the world. As we go to our message today, let's open our hearts and minds to the truth that God would speak to us. Our second scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 2. I'll invite you to have your Bibles open to that passage. Ephesians 2, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord, in these moments, may our hearts and our ears be open and attentive to you. We thank you, Lord, for the cross. May it ever be before us as we center ourselves upon your word. I pray, Father, for the leading of your Holy Spirit so that I may speak words of your truth, to speak in simplicity, seasoned with love and grace, so that you would accomplish in our midst your good and perfect will. For every good thing that we receive and experience now, we offer only to you the praise and the glory in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. So this has been kind of a weird week. We uh, enter into the season of Lent, preparing for Easter without a traditional Ash Wednesday service. And so... Today is kind of our launching point into this season that generally calls for uh, a a pretty good level of self-reflection and introspection. And for a few weeks this Lenten season, we are going to uh, 
uh, be talking about some scriptures and all around the idea of what you have probably heard so many times that Christians are described as people who are being in the world but not of the world. Have you ever heard that before? Okay. So we're in the world, but we're not of the world. Well, that's true. And so we're going to be kind of reflecting on that for a few weeks. And today is going to just kind of lay a foundation upon which we can build. Uh, and, and using the passage from Ephesians, as well as some other scriptures, to kind of do that. And so we're going to start this journey through Lent, uh, thinking about who we are called to be in the world, and yet not being of the world. If you, if you take a, a, an approach to Bible study called an inductive approach, there are, there are observations that you would make along the way. Now, just for clarity and without going into some deep dive on it, and in, inductive reasoning basically is the, is the process of making observations and then drawing from that conclusions. You know, it's not deductive, it's, it's looking at what you see over and over again when you start to see patterns or you start to see things that kind of reaffirm themselves, then you start to draw conclusions from it. Inductive, um, an, an inductive method of Bible study is, is a good way to approach the scriptures because you start to find the themes that jump out. We're all, uh, we all have the capacity of guilt, of being guilty of taking like one verse or one phrase out of the Bible and, and holding it up as if it, it, it clearly represents all the truth there is to know. And, and I'm not saying that you can take, can't take one Bible verse and say, here's the truth in it. But we should always be willing to say, is this reaffirmed by a lot of other things that you find in the Bible? If it's not, then at least we ought to step back modestly and say, well, here's what I think it means, but, you know, I can't confirm that by other things I find in the Bible. And especially if we find parts of the Bible that say something very different, then we ought to say, well, maybe I'm not understanding this verse in the right way. So inductive study means you're going to look at, uh, you know, a, a broad section of the Bible and find those things that continue to float to the surface. If you were to approach the scripture like that, one of the things that you would observe is that evil is described basically in three ways in, that, that we deal with. So there are kind of three manifestations or, or three forms that evil influence presents itself to us. Those three forms, if you will, are Satan, the flesh, and the world. Okay? All three of those are mentioned in this passage of Ephesians. And I want us to spend a few, a few minutes on this because I think we need to kind of get that clear in our minds before we start building on it in, in the weeks to come. Okay? And you've heard these terms before, Satan, flesh, and the world. Um, let, let's just kind of talk briefly about each one of them. Satan, okay? In verse 2 of Ephesians, you'll find this phrase, according to the prince of the power of the air. Okay, this is what the writer is referring to. He's referring to that, that, that person, that malevolent being who is always consistently in opposition to the things of God. And as you read scripture, you will find Satan referenced a number of times, even in the life of Jesus and in the New Testament. Okay? When, when Jesus was starting his earthly ministry, 
before he even healed the first person, before he had the first uh, bout of teaching, he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted by whom? By Satan. The Scripture tells us that plainly. We even, we're even privy to some of the conversation that the two of them have when Satan finds Jesus at his weak moments and he's trying to tempt Jesus, okay? This is Satan's devices, okay? He, he's a tempter, he's a liar, he's a deceiver. Uh, Jesus refers to him as a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. These are the things that Satan wants to do. He is intentionally at work against the things of God. Not only did he try to undermine Jesus, and by the way, I find it very uh, interesting that when you, uh, when you talk about that, that passage where Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted, there are three different gospel accounts that tell us of that, but Luke in particular says something interesting, that after Satan had tempted Jesus, he left him until an opportune time. And that's a powerful statement, as if to suggest that Satan knew that he wasn't going to get the best of him in that moment, but he wasn't done with him yet, that he would come back in a time of weakness. Okay, This is what Satan does. He looks for those opportunities of weakness. Satan, Satan also requested uh, permission to, to sift Peter like wheat. In Luke chapter 22, we're told Jesus says to Peter, he says, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Okay? We, we think about Job. Job is not the only one that, that, that Satan has gone and, and, and asked or demanded permission to, to tempt and to test. He did it when he wanted to do it with Peter also. But Jesus told uh, Peter, he said, but I've prayed for you. And you can read this in Luke 22. He says, I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Jesus interceded to God on Peter's behalf, knowing that Satan would come against him and try to undermine his faith. This is what Satan does. Uh, just, just kind of to, uh, to put a put a last nail in that. First uh, Peter five verse eight says, "Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour." Okay, so Scripture just kind of continuously talks about this 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 malevolent being who is always in opposition to the things of God, okay? So that's one of the manifestations uh, or forms in which evil uh, comes to us. The second one is the flesh, okay? The writer of Ephesians in verse 3 says that you formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, okay? This is what it's talking about, this, this me that is inclined against the things of God. Now, this is not some kind of doctrine saying that our physical bodies are evil because our physical bodies are created by God and they were intended for good. They were part of what God called good. But when the, when the Bible talks about the flesh, the Bible is talking about that, that fallen nature, that sinful nature that every one of us deal with. It is inclined to, to be self-serving, self-satisfying. It is inclined to do those things that that serve itself rather than being obedient to the things of God. Okay, this is what the flesh does. Um, Paul in Galatians 5.17 says that the flesh sets its, its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh because the two are in opposition to one another. And I would recommend also going back to Romans chapter 8. I know I'm just kind of flooding you all with, with some of this. Hopefully you have a pencil in hand and you're going to write these down. Go back to Romans 8 and start reading toward the beginning of that chapter because Paul will start talking at length about 
about the, uh, being uh, those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, because the two are set in opposition to one another. Okay, The flesh wants us to walk in one way that is in opposition to what the Spirit of God wants us to walk. And just again, uh, observe what, what the writer of Ephesians says at the end of verse 3, where it says that we were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. So many times you will, and maybe, maybe we're guilty of it as well, okay? That we talk about those things that come naturally, okay? Well, I do this because that's just the way that I am. This is just the way that I am naturally. That, that phrase should throw up a red flag to the Christian. You might say, well, why should, why should that phrase throw up a red flag to the Christian? Because if we are trying to endorse anything by saying, it just comes naturally to me, we have to remember the nature of our nature. It's fallen. It's corrupt. It is not given to the things of God. That's our human condition. Paul says in verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath. So we cannot endorse something simply based on it just comes naturally. Because the flesh is set in opposition to the Spirit. You have Satan, you have the flesh, and then you have the world, okay? The writer of Ephesians says in verse 2 that we walked according to the course of this world, okay? It is that influence that comes not from within, like the flesh, but it comes from out here. It comes from the world around us. It, it is though, it, it's those influences of, of society, of culture. And think, think, if you will, about these realities. In our world especially today, uh, we are bombarded with information, much of which is designed to influence us. It is designed to make us uh, think certain ways. It's designed to get us to respond and to and to act in certain ways. Our news, please don't try to tell me that our news is not intended to influence us. It is, and you know it. Hollywood, TV shows, movies, they are definitely designed to influence us, to get us to think in certain ways, to get us to embrace certain values or, or principles, whatever it may be. And those are just examples. There is a world, there is a culture around us that is consistently trying to get us to adapt in our thinking and in our behavior to it. And this is what the Scripture calls the world. Now, now when you read the Scripture and you see the word world, you always have to ask how the Bible is intended to use it. 
Because you could go back to John 3.16 and say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And say, well, I mean, it doesn't seem like the Bible's talking badly about the world and that. No, of course not. He's talking about this is God's creation. God, God, God loves his creation. God wants to redeem his creation. Of course God gave the best that he had to give for the world. But then in so many other places you find that the world is talked about in that influence around us. Let me just give you a couple of examples. James chapter 4, verse 4. Just make a note, go re read it. James 4, verse 4 says, You adulteresses, you know that it's not getting off on a good foot when, when that's the way the verse begins. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's pretty strong. To be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. Jesus told his disciples before he went to his death that in the world they would have tribulation, that the world would oppose them. Why? Why, why should they expect that? Because Jesus understood that if they were to walk in his ways, it would, by, by its very nature, by the definition of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, put them in opposition to the ways of the world. That the two were in contrast to one another, and if they were going to be faithful to him, the world was going to push back. That was just the reality of it. So, naming those three things, Here's how I want to bring that together. Those are not three uh, disconnected ideas. The three are like facets of one reality, that there is evil that works against us, and in one of those three ways, though, that evil works to get us in opposition to God. Uh, let me just give you a couple of more Scripture references uh, to see how the, how Scripture brings those things together. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 17, 15 through 17, the, the writer says this, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of this life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And so you can see there where John pulls that idea of flesh and, and the world together. And then again in chapter 5 of 1 John, in verse 19, uh, the, the writer says this, that we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so Satan and the world there, there are brought together, that one is the influence of the other. So here's the thing. As a follower of Jesus Christ, we are not given the privilege of saying that I'll reject one but yet embrace another. Okay? We don't get to say, uh, I, I reject Satan. I don't, I don't want anything to do with, with him, uh, but I like to embrace the things of my culture. You know, I want to be culturally relevant. I want to go with the flow of the way the world is. We can't disconnect them like that. Or, or I can't say, 
you know, I'll, I'll try to, to, to not be influenced by the culture, but I really like gratifying the desires that I have. You know, I want to I satisfy those things that seem to come naturally, and if it just kind of flows out of me naturally, then I'm okay with that because God must be okay with that because that's my nature, right? We don't get those privileges. We, we don't get to separate those three out. It, it's a package deal that as a, as a follower of Christ, we reject Satan, we reject the world, and we reject the influence of the flesh. At least under your breath, you should be saying amen. So that's where we are. That is where we are called to be. Now, there's good news. The writer of Ephesians goes on. This, this passage in Ephesians 2 is a great like before and after picture. Here's where you were before Christ. Here's where you are after Christ. It's, a, it's an extreme makeover. It's a great transformation. The writer goes on and says in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. That through Jesus Christ, God has taken that which was dead, you and me, and given us life. He has created us anew and given us life. Now, just as a side note, I want to point this out. By the way, the, the, the writing of Ephesians is extremely deep and rich. There is no way that we would have time to cover all of the nuances of, the, of what the language brings out. One of the things that the writer is doing in these passages is talking about how God in Christ brings the Jew and the Gentile together. And so you'll get some of the kind of this you and us language, but then it's a we language. And it's just interesting to note that when, when chapter 2 began, it was you, 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 because Paul as a writer, a Jewish writer, is talking to a Gentile audience. He said, you were dead in your trespasses. You formerly walked in, in according to these ways. But then he gets down to verses 4 and 5, and all of a sudden it's we. So he puts the Jews in with it. And we were dead in our transgressions. Not just you, but we also. So it didn't matter, Jew or Gentile. The reality is, we were all dead in our transgressions and sins. Right? Isn't that what Paul says familiarly in Romans 3.23? That who, how many have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? All. Good, good. That's Bible scholars out here. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not just one group or the other. It's all. We all were dead in our transgressions. And he has made us alive together in Christ. And so what is, what is this aliveness? What is it to be alive in Christ? It is more than just getting your ticket to heaven punched. Okay? And that, that's a beautiful part of it, to be able to, to say, Lord, I, I, I want forgiveness for my sin. I want, you, I want to receive that blood of Jesus you know, to cover me and to cover my sinfulness. I want to embrace the promise that one day, Lord, you are going to bring me into your eternal kingdom. I will sit at your banquet table. I will be gathered with all the saints, all of that. 
And, and all of our beautiful pictures of heaven, we look forward to that. But aliveness in Christ is more than just, I'm waiting for that day when I can go to heaven. Aliveness in Christ is being made new now. It, it is having a new direction in life and living for a better purpose in life. It is being taken from one thing and put toward a new thing. Saying old, say, saying goodbye to that which is old and hello to that which is becoming new. It is, and, and, and I want to say this to you this morning. Every Christian conversion is a radical conversion. It may not seem so to us, and I think you'll agree with where I'm going. We, we have a tendency to be more impressed with the, uh, the, the, the conversion stories that are radical in our interpretation. And you've heard them before, haven't you? The, that person that says, man, my life was so messed up. I was running with the wrong crowd. I was, I was doing this and I was doing that and I was in trouble with the law. I was in jail. I was, I w you know, it's like the total train wreck of a life, right? And then, uh, Jesus shows up and they are, they are radically turned around as, it's like they're a completely new person and now they are, they've got their act together, you know, they're, they're on the right track, things are different. You've heard these stories, right? You've heard these testimonies. And we sit back and we say, wow! I mean, that is such a radical conversion of how someone could go from that to this. And in the way we see things, we usually don't, we don't see every conversion story like that, do we? Because some people say, well, you know, I kind of grew up, like I wasn't the perfect kid, but I, I wasn't in trouble all the time. I, I kind of tried to do the right thing. I kind of kept my life on the right path. I was, you know, I went to church. I minded my parents most of the time, you know. And, and so the, 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 the coming to Christ seems to have not been quite as impressive to us. Am I, am I telling the truth? We, we become more impressed with the stories that to us are radical. But please think about this. Every Christian conversion is a radical conversion. And I say that with absolute confidence based on an understanding of the human condition fallen from God. Even those of us who might have seemed to have had our life together, who have done a fairly good job of staying on the right track as society would lay it down, because of our nature, coming to Christ is a radical conversion because he brings us out of darkness into his glorious 
light and recreates us. It is radical. Because of that radical conversion, Jesus then sets us on a life of discipleship in this world that is meant to be different. So we ask the question, what does it look like for the Christian to be in the world but not of the world? We use that term, we probably ought to think about what it means. Let me share with you a passage from John chapter 15. Um, this is in that long, um, continuous text that describes to us the, the last night that Jesus spent with his disciples. It's a long dialogue. Most of it is Jesus speaking, but it's interspersed a little bit with some comments and questions from the disciples. Jesus makes this comment to them in, in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. He says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. It's from that passage that we, at least in part, get that idea of in the world but not of the world. And Jesus said, I've called you out of the world. And you have to understand that the world is going to hate you because it's hated me. And you are now part of me. So what does it look like for us to be in the world and yet not of the world? And in answering that, I think back to to Jesus' own day, when there were these different sects of Jewish people running around. And they had kind of a different approach and a different mindset to things. And I won't go through the whole host of them, but I'll mention a couple. One of the more familiar groups within Judaism is, is that group we, we call the Pharisees. Um, very sanctimonious, very uh, intent on outwardly following the premises of their religious faith. They were, they were people who despised foreign rule in their land, but yet, interestingly, when it served their purposes, embraced it fully. And if you don't believe me, go back and read the Passion Narrative. When Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? Do you remember what their answer was? Oh, you all are good. You're on top of it. You're awake this morning. Good job. We have no king but Caesar. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a Jewish person saying, Caesar's our king? Well, it could be, it might be a different sermon altogether to kind of pursue what that looks like in the 21st century, but, um, that outward embracing of the premises of religion and yet willing to embrace all of the world and its 
uh, its influences, whether, whether it be political or cultural or whatever it is. As long as it serves your purpose, you're willing to embrace it and yet maintain the outward premises of, of your religion. That's kind of the way the Pharisees seem to have been. The other end of the spectrum would have been that group that we call the Essenes. We don't know quite as much about them. We don't talk about the Essenes quite as much. But they were a, they were deeply spiritual, deeply, deeply convicted group about their, their religious faith. Um, but they took a different approach to it. They were convinced that the ways of the world were corrupt. They were convinced that the ways of their own religion were corrupt. And, and it was a pretty accurate assessment. And so what they did was that they just removed themselves. They went out into the wilderness. They set up their own little communities where they could just kind of be by themselves. They could write. They could study. They could live communally. And they could wait for their anticipated Messiah. Okay, That's the way the Essenes went about it. It, it was that in, in our modern language, we would, use, we would call it kind of a uh, monastic kind of life. It's just removing ourselves from the world and saying, I'm just going to be spiritual myself or with my own little collective and, and, and we'll exist like that. And, and I think about those examples and I, th- and I think, no, that, that's, not, that's not it. It's not being in the world and embracing the things of the world, but it's not saying no to the world and, and I'm taking myself out of the world. It, it's something in between. And maybe it's described best in the simple way that Jesus taught his followers. And and you'll remember these words very easily, found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, where Jesus said to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the what? Light of the world. You don't take a lamp and hide it under a basket. You set it up on a hill so everyone can see. Okay? Light is intended to be seen. Salt. You don't take salt and just store it away in a box somewhere. Well, I mean, I guess you do temporarily until you want to use it, but salt is intended to be used for, for whatever purpose. You put the salt into whatever you want affected by the salt. And Jesus used those images to describe his followers. You are in the world to be, to be a, a a, a, a flavoring, a, a, to have an impact, you are there to affect the world by the nature of your kingdomness. But then he asked this one question, and this maybe is the question that should carry over for us as we journey through Lent. What do you do with salt that has lost its saltiness? What did he say you do with salt that's lost its saltiness? Throw it out, right? It's good for nothing except the manure pile. Just kind of had this blunt way of putting things. 
you just throw it out because it has no effect anymore. You see, as followers of Jesus Christ, I think we owe it to God to ask ourselves the question. Are there ways in which we're not salty anymore? Have we, have we succumbed to the influences around us so that we no longer are being the light of the kingdom? You see, I believe that the Christian is called to a sober self-awareness of whether or not we are truly being in the world and yet not of the world. It's a really important question for us to ask. And as we make our way through these weeks, I pray that we will at least have the willingness to have hearts that are open to look and see what the answer to that question is. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Uh, we thank you that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you do such a wonderful transformation within us. But Father, you've given us such an important role as we make our, day, make our way through the days of this life. Father, we don't want to uh, fall short. We don't want to take lightly the great calling that you put upon our lives. So I pray, Father, that you would grant to us a willingness to be examined, to self-examine, to have your Holy Spirit assess and, and show us ways in which we have simply become like the world around us, rather than being different so that we might be the salt and the light you've called us to be. Father, accomplish this for no other reason than you might be glorified through your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're glad that you chose to spend this time with us in God's Word. You can catch our worship services online at www.rmumc.net. May the Lord grant you the light of his truth as you journey through this day.